Okay, so another way that food service is different from retail, keep in mind that every time you sell into a food service operator, they are literally changing their menu to use your product. So if you have a core item in their menu, whether that's a chicken sandwich or a ranch dressing or their burger or their milkshake, if you have a short, if you have an out of stock in supply chain, eventually you will affect their menu and they're going to have to change their menu because they can't get your product. Welcome to the Startup CPG Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Freitag. Today is our fifth episode in the First Hire series, where we've so far covered making first hires in marketing, finance, operations, and retail sales. Now we get to cover food service sales. Here to help us learn more about first hires in food service sales is Jenna Cameron. Jenna is currently the sales lead at Simulate and has years of experience in food service sales for growing brands. Listen in as Jenna answers, when to hire help in food service sales and how full-time employees, consultants, and brokers can all fit into the picture, how food service sales differs from retail sales, key attributes of a successful food service sales employee, why it's important to focus within this food service channel, how to set up a first hire in food service sales for success, great shows and resources for your food service sales hire, and more. And stay tuned at the end for a bonus segment today featuring Startup CPG Shelfie Award winner for Good Granola. Jenna and I will share our reviews mid-episode, and then at the end of the episode, you can catch a mini interview with For Good Granola's founder, Kylie, to learn more. Hi, Jenna. Welcome to the show today. How are you? Hey, Jesse. I am doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I am so excited to hear have you here to talk about food service sales and first hires. And, you know, our regular listeners know we've done some other episodes about first hires in marketing and, uh, you know, retail sales and operations. And so I'm so glad to have you to shine some light on the food service channel. And food service is, we just did a webinar actually yesterday of, of our recording date with Startup CPG on food service sales. And it was very popular, lots of questions um, from our community. So yeah, just really glad to have you here and wondering if you could start us off by just telling us a little bit about yourself, what you do, um, and like your career path within food service sales. Yeah, absolutely. Um, first of all, I'm, I'm really excited to talk about food service, um, just because it's what I do on a day to day. And I feel like it is such a beast of a channel that it's really fun for me to get into kind of like the nitty gritty details. Um, just because there are so many areas of food service, you know, it's essentially like where you go to eat outside the home from the moment that you're born until the moment you die, right? So it could be, um, a hospital or a school or a restaurant or, you know, really anything in between. Um, yeah, so I'm excited to talk more about that. But just to give you a little bit on my background, uh, I have been in the plant-based startup space for the past more than eight years. Um, and just being involved in that space, it's so fun. It's grown so quickly over the past even you know five years, let's just say. Um, and I started in that space back in 2013. Actually, I was living in Minnesota at the time, which is where I'm from. And I started a brand ambassador position with Just, formerly Hampton Creek at the time. And, uh, you know, I was really managing all of our retail stores in one little area in Minnesota. So working with Whole Foods and doing demos, um, using the Just Mayo, you know, and different salads and putting it on bread and stuff like that. 
Um, so that was my first foray into startup lands. And then I moved to San Francisco in 2014 um, to work full time for Just. And I was with them for a long time through lots of growth, lots of change. Um, I was with them for about six years and was really able to touch many areas of the company and wear a lot of hats as is the case um, for startups. But I worked in retail. I managed our brand ambassador team. We called them the Creakers. And you know there were tons of them at the height of the program. Um, and then I jumped into uh, operations briefly and then jumped into food service and really helped us build out that channel. Um, and like I said, I was with Just for a long time. So I was able to build up a really good group of customers and partners in the space. Um, after that, I kind of shifted gears and was with Wild Earth for about a year and a half. And Wild Earth was a great journey. Wild Earth is the high protein plant based dog food company started by Ryan Bethencourt. Um, they were on Shark Tank as well. That was not food service focused, but I learned a ton. Um, you know, learning the pet food space versus people food was really interesting and insightful. Um, and then Wild Earth was also, also at first only direct to consumer. So I was able to learn all the things that I learned at just kind of, um, IRL and shifted them online. So I built a brand ambassador program online on Instagram. Um, I worked with amazon.com and chewy.com. Um, you know, launched us in India, which was really fun, and then worked with all of our retail pet stores. And then after Wild Earth, I managed food service sales at Alpha. And Alpha does pretty much everything under the sun plant-based. They do breakfast burritos, all-day burritos, breakfast sandwiches, chicken nuggets, um, you know, beefy crumbles, pot pies. So they have a massive portfolio of about 30 items. Um, and Many of those were stocked at Dot, which is a big food service redistributor. Uh, and so I worked for Alpha, you know, just managing food service um, for about two years. And then just this week, I have announced um, a new role with Simulate. And I will be working to build out the food service channel for Simulate um, along with our amazing team of about 40 people. That's awesome. And congratulations on your new role. And can you tell us a little bit about, um, like, I know I've seen Simulate in, the, in uh, I think I've seen some of the marketing and everything. Can you tell us a little bit about what they do? Yeah, absolutely. So Simulate, uh, they used to be called Nugs. So that might mm -hmm. be, um, you know, the brand that people are a little more familiar with. But because Simulate doesn't only make chicken nuggets now, um, they recently rebranded to Simulate. And uh, it pretty much sums it up all in the name. So at Simulate, we make simulations of meats, specifically chicken, and, you know, working to make the best possible simulation um, of those meat-based items. So right now we do chicken nuggets, spicy chicken nuggets, chicken tenders, and we just launched two new items in food service specifically, um, chicken cutlets and strips, which I'm really excited about. I just got to try them at the office this week. Nice. That's awesome. And I yeah. wanted to kind of help us set the stage for, so we'll be talking about you know, being hiring your first food service salesperson, and you've been in that role before. And I'm wondering to start us off, if you can kind of, you know, set up some of the terms or like some of the, you know, key things that you're going to be referencing and talking about the food service channel, you mentioned like, you know, that you've got hospitals and colleges. And I'm curious if there's other terms that would be helpful to kind of define up front that may be different for the food service channel before we dive in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there are a lot of terms in food service as there are in, you know, any channel. Um, but for the most part, the way that I look at food service, uh, it it's 
a massive bucket of opportunity, which makes it really fun because when you're trying to sell in food service, you can go in a ton of different directions. So, um, you know, what I'll be doing at Simulate and what I would suggest brands do in general is try to be more focused because if you try to be everywhere all at once, you're just going to be too maxed out. Um, but essentially the way I look at food service is two buckets. Um, you have non-commercial and commercial. So commercial accounts would include, um, restaurant chains, QSRs. QSR is a quick service restaurant. So that could be anything from McDonald's, Burger King, Del Taco, um, down to, you know, smaller regional chains, uh, like Modern Market or Lemonade. And um, so QSR is, you know, all within that huge bucket. Um, and then that falls under commercial and then non-commercial accounts that includes pretty much everything other than a restaurant that you would go to. So if you're eating food at a college or a university, um, a K through 12 school, a hospital, um, a correctional facility, a theme park, um, you know, that's kind of how I look at it is commercial and non-commercial. And then within those buckets, you have all kinds of different areas of food service. Um, so yeah, I guess that's kind of how I look at it. And then within that, so you have all of those, sorry, this is like a roundabout way to say it. All of those are operators. So operators are, uh, you know, like places that you would go to eat and you'd spend money. It's, um, you know, forward facing. Um, all of the operators pull from distributors and distribution is a really important component of food service as well. So like where are all those operators ordering their tomatoes or their chicken nuggets or their condiments? They're getting them from distributors. Um, and distributors can also vary. They can be small and regional. One of my favorite Bay Area distributors is called Byright. Um, even though they're located here in the Bay Area, they're actually the 24th largest distributor in the U.S. Um, they have a really great local following, and they have everything from you know like high-end cheeses to tons of plant-based products. Um, you know, like Impossible, um, and hopefully Simulate soon. Um, but yeah, so then you also have distributors that they can range from small to very big, like Cisco or U.S. Foods, which um, you've probably heard of. And then another layer. So how do we get all of these products transported in trucks all over the country? Um, you also have redistribution as well. So there's, a, I mentioned Dot Foods earlier. Dot Foods is also a massive redistributor. And what that means is they will sell to people like Cisco, US Foods, BuyRight, um, and many, you know, regional distributors in between to help them get all of the products they're looking for and essentially like Tetris them together on a truck um, to make it easier to order like a smaller quantity for the operators. Right. Okay. And, and, you know, some of a, the, sometimes there'll be some distributor overlap with the retail channel as well, right? Like someone, sometimes someone in food service may also order from UNFI depending on what you want know, type of uh, place it is. Yeah, absolutely. And UNFI has their whole, they have a whole food service arm as well. Um, so a lot of the operators I've worked with in the past, of course, everybody will have a preferred distributor based on location, their relationship, product availability, um, you know, variety, that kind of thing. But yeah, UNFI, even though they're they're super well-known in retail, you know, they, they stock for um, Whole Foods and tons of massive retailers. They also have a Whole food service business. Um, so they will service, you know, restaurant chains and um, grocerants. Grocerant is the deli space um, within retail. So um, yeah, there's a lot of opportunity in UNFI too. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's very interesting. And when you've been like 
in that first hire role and, you know, when you've been getting up to speed or learning, are there any things that you found have, have kind of like the key functions that someone that's going to be focused in food service sales, like, you know, that sh- should be covered in their job, uh, job function? I would say don't be afraid to just jump in and start doing things. Um, because I have pretty much only worked in the startup space. I have had the opportunity to be thrown into a lot of different roles and situations. So I learned food service simply by doing and I learned it from the ground up. Um, But you know, kind of like I mentioned before, when you approach food service, it can be daunting and overwhelming. So I would try to do your best to be focused and figure out where you have a product market fit, you know, so really look at Okay, who are you? T- who are you targeting from a consumer base? Um, where are they shopping? Where are they eating? And kind of try to define yourself from there, um, because you can slice food service into so many segments and smaller segments and smaller segments um, that it really helps, especially at the beginning, to focus your efforts. Um, you know, if you make, for example, a vegan pepperoni, um, maybe you want to target pizza chains, and uh, you know you can work with like regional, larger pizza chains. You can attend pizza specific shows like the Pizza Expo. Um, But yeah, I would really try to isolate the segments that you're looking to target in food service and start there. Um, And then of course, you have to build your distributor strategy around that too. Right. So what does it kind of look? I know it's always a hard question of like, what does it look like day to day? Because every day probably looks a little different. But I'm curious, like, you know, how could you kind of describe some of the different buckets or pieces of a day that either for yourself or that, you know, when you've been in that like first hire role, like what does a day look like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll just use Justin as an example, because I have, um, you know, a lot of time and experience to pull from. Um, But at Just, we found that one of our top segments was the college university segment. Um, And so that was, you know, they were really some of our first food service customers. We got into tons of the self-operated colleges and universities. um, And self-operated just means that they control their purchasing decisions and dining. They don't work with like an Aramark or a Sodexo or, um, you know, Compass Group. So we really were able to break into that segment and build advocates kind of all over the country. So getting into um, a lot of the California schools, getting into a lot of the uh, like Ivy Leagues and the Big Tens um, and just targeting that segment specifically. We worked with tons of college campus ambassadors that were huge advocates for the brand. That was a really fun part of my my role too, was, you know, working directly with them and um, kind of making advocates um, out of those like college students who are already super mission aligned. Yeah. Okay. And like what, what percentage of time would you kind of allocate to the different functions of like cold outreach versus like nurturing leads that you have versus managing accounts that you've landed versus distributor relationships? Kind of curious about that breakdown. Yeah, absolutely. So I think a lot of it at first is uh, building out your leads and your pipeline And then sort of funneling down into the segments that you want to focus on. Um, But generally, you know, I would do cold outreach all the time. I still do cold outreach all the time. Um, It's great if you can get in, you know, at least 10, let's just say 10 uh, cold emails slash phone calls every day. Um, And then it helps if you're able to track your activity in a CRM, or at least if you're just starting out a spreadsheet so you can log your interaction. Um, And I usually... 
you know, when you're building out a pipeline, you want to have a lot of leads coming in and then a narrower funnel. Um, so I would try to do a lot of reach out, um, crafting, you know, personalized, cold emails, um, and then following up with phone calls, um, you know, every seven days, and then using that as a starting point to build the pipeline. Um, and then of course, you know, you always have to uh, not target super large opportunities um, at first and, you know, start a little bit smaller and build up from there. So I would focus on a lot of regional chains, um, you know, versus reaching out to McDonald's right away. And are you generally building the relationship with the accounts first and then working on the distributor setup, distributor relationship after? Or is it some cove doing both of getting into distributors and trying to sell into the accounts? Sometimes it can be very simultaneous. Um, you know, when you're building out a food service channel from the ground up, often you won't have a lot of distributors to start, which is totally fine. Um, so you always have to develop that push and pull strategy. Um, you know, if you're going to be approaching like a Google or a Facebook or a LinkedIn and they don't have anywhere to order your product from, that's going to be a problem. So I would usually try to focus on a number of operators um, in a specific region and align them around a strategic distributor. So just using Byred as an example, being in the space for the past almost 10 years, I have an idea of who their customers are. So I would strategically you know, target those end operators. And then once I have enough demand built up, approach Byred and try to set up a program with them, um, You know, get in to meet with their sales team, get the item open-coded, um, and then make it much easier for other accounts to order it in the future. Um, and the great thing about food services, is once you build those relationships, you can kind of carry them with you um, throughout your career. Uh, and, you know, just like anything, everybody knows everybody. It's a really fun space to be in. And you get to talk about food and eat food all the time, which is like one of my favorite parts. <laughs> and then you can also you can also find accounts that, uh, you know, they're big enough on their own that they can provide that pull for you. Um, and I think the college university segment can be great for that. You know, um, UC Berkeley could potentially get an item stocked at by right if they really like it, um, you know, usually they can meet that minimum um, to get an item in. Interesting. And from like a, from a brand side, a lot of the brands in our community, you know, it's, it's founder, co-founder, maybe they're, maybe they're up to a team of, you know, two or three people, maybe even five. What would you, what advice would you have for deciding when it's time to hire help specifically in the food service channel? Like what, considerations are there for hiring someone in food service and like, you know, and then from there we can go into whether that person should, you know, be contractor full time, but curious about your perspective on like, when is a brand ready to consider like, all right, it's maybe it's time that we have someone dedicated or partially dedicated to the food service channel. Yeah. Uh, I think there are a lot of factors that go into that specifically, um, you know, do you have the food service packaging? Do you, you know, are you really focusing on food service, uh, like bigger bulk sizes, etc.? So once you can build up to that point, I think is step one, you know, do you have uh, 10 pound cases of your product available and ready to sell? Great. And then um, I believe you can really start with a smaller team, maybe even one or two people when you're first building everything out, because you do need a bit of time to create that initial funnel and pipeline. Um, I think it can get overwhelming when you start to see traction and you build up those customers. One person's not necessarily going to have the bandwidth to manage 100 customers all at once. And I've seen a lot of brands go in different routes once they get to that area of, you know, hey, food service is making up um, a majority uh, or, you know, a good percentage of our sales. In the past, 
I've noticed a lot of brands either going the broker model right away or hiring internal internally right away. Um, I actually think sort of a hybrid model is the sweet spot where you have a team of uh, brokers, whether they're smaller, um, more regional to start and then national. Um, and then, you know, still a small internal team. I think it really helps to have um, an internal team supporting the brokers so that they get, uh, you know, the right training, they have access to samples, they're always pre- presenting the product and the, and the brand in the right way. Um, so yeah, I think kind of doing both at first can help. Yeah. Can, if you have hired someone for, you know, more retail focused sales, is that something that they can, can they do, you know, some food service to kind of start to grow it out and then you hire someone full time, like, or is it best to kind of have it separated out because it's such a different channel? Curious about your thoughts on like, someone trying to kind of multitask between channels? I think it's doable, but I would suggest having someone focusing exclusively on food service to build it out. Um, I think you can dabble a little bit in both worlds, especially early on. But as the channel grows, it's hopefully going to need its its own um, dedicated channel manager. Uh, just because it is such a, it's such a different customer set, the distribution models are totally different. And it can get a little overwhelming and confusing if you're trying to do both simultaneously. Um, I think, you know, maybe like 20 to 25%. If you say you're focusing, say you're focusing exclusively on uh, retail and your food service business is very small, um, you could still manage it if it's only like 20 to 25% of your time. But once it starts getting significantly higher than that, I think that's probably a good indication that you need somebody dedicated to food service. Right. And you mentioned food service packaging, and I may get these terms wrong, but there's also like different components of you may have bulk packaging for like, is it like back of house like food service? And then you have you may use your regular retail packaging for other places, like if you're in the student store at a university or something, right? Is that the difference in packaging that you're talking about? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, So in food service, you know, obviously restaurants are using bigger quantities and they're ordering things in bulk. So it helps to have larger pack sizes for them to be able to use um, both from, you know, labor savings perspective. Uh, Nobody wants to be opening uh, retail bag after retail bag after retail bag. And it's also a cost savings. Um, So food service, you know, bulk cases, while they are more expensive than a retail pack, um, you have significantly more product and, uh, you know, ideally will last your customer much longer than a retail bag. Um, you also save money. I have your granola that you gave me, which I'm really excited to try. Um, but you oh, can see amazing. how this... Yeah, I'm so excited to try it. But you can see this is definitely a retail pack. Um, it has beautiful branding. It has all the information on the front and the back. Um, you know, this is something that a consumer would buy off the shelf. But a food service pack is super different. I wish I had one here. It's a large box and the outer box is going to be labeled and you'll have like your G10 and your UPC and your barcode on the outer case. But then inside, you're going to have smaller, probably not labeled inner pack sizes um, that are you know much more cost effective to make, but they don't necessarily look pretty. Um, so yeah, they're, it's, they look very different. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And they're going to different types of you're selling them in for different methods of that they're going to be used for. Yes, absolutely. So say you have like a 10 pound case of chicken nuggets, for example, Um, they're probably going to be packed in two five pound bags so that your operator can grab the five pounds, 
rip open the top of the bag or with a knife and pour them in the air fryer. And, you know, your food service customers can completely, you know, completely vary across the board. So let's just say you're working with um, a stadium and it's game day and they're super busy. Uh, You know, they definitely do not want to be dealing with those retail packs. Um, They're going to be just like taking those bags and pouring them in the deep fryer and like serving them to a line of people as fast as possible. And they cook within two to three minutes. Um, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Whereas you might have your little retail pack be in the student store or something and a student might be buying four nuggets to take home and heat up in their microwave in their dorm room or something. Yeah, exactly. And that's actually a great area where you can cross promote and brand. If you're in a college university, um, they're, they're, they have many dining halls on site. So colleges and universities can have, let's just say, 12 dining halls on site. Um, they also have the little micro markets. So if you get a product stocked into the back of house at a college or university, um, you can cross promote and brand by getting your retail pack size, you know, in the cooler, the grab and go area. Um, and I always like to leverage that specific area for events too. So just going back to college ambassadors, um, you know, if you're working with these college students to set up events on campus, they can have a table branded tablecloth and uh, work with the chefs to do a sampling or tasting of the food service pack and then direct students to go and grab some for their dorm room from the micro market. Um, So it is actually ideal if your brand can hit both of those areas. Um, So when I'm reaching out to CNU specifically, I always try to approach back of house and front of house for the added exposure. Right. Okay. And then what would you say as far as like you know, personality types or traits that you look for for someone that is going to be successful in food service or what traits have you found in yourself that have been helped you be successful in this type of work that if a brand is hiring, you know, to help look for and find the right fit? Mm, Yeah, that's a great question. So what I would look for in a food service employee is somebody who obviously loves food and being in the food industry. I think it's great if there's you know, personal passion or story behind it. Um, just being in the space for so long, I feel lucky I get to work with a lot of super talented chefs and, you know, people with um, allergies and dietary restrictions that have these amazing passionate stories for the food that they make and, you know, why they're here. Um, so I think passion alone is definitely a great quality to have. Um, but just in general, being in food service is all about building relationships and, um, you know, loving networking and the ability to kind of throw yourself into any situation. I can't even tell you how many um, meetings and cuttings that I've done where something has changed. I don't have a piece of equipment. I have to do everything in a microwave. Um, you know, I'm presenting on a, uh, a workbench in the back of a kitchen and everybody's like rent- rushing around during the middle of a crazy lunch rush. Um, So just, you know, being able to be flexible and uh, walk into any room or meeting with a smile on your face, you know? Yeah. Adaptability, I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. And do you you think for emerging brands, does it make sense to try to hire someone that has food service experience? Can you maybe afford that person? Or is it a role that someone can learn? Like, I'm kind of curious about that perspective of hiring someone with specific experience in that niche? Yeah, I feel like there are a ton of different ways to go about that. You could hire a dedicated food service person to really come in and build out the channel for you. Um, If you're not quite to that level and your food service business is extremely limited and um, you're looking more for a strategist, you could work with your internal team and perhaps hire a consultant um, to help you get to that next level. There are tons of food service consultants out there. Um, food service is a quite difficult channel to break into 
um, with no connections, no experience, and no insight. Um, because, you know, as I mentioned, there are so many layers to it. Um, from the pack sizes to the distribution to figure navigating your pricing and where you want to, um, you know, set your, your list price at. Um, so I would recommend for a brand starting out, if you don't want to bring in someone internal, maybe reach out to a consultant and bring them in for a six month contract or a year long contract, something like that. Um, because if you're doing it all on your own, your wheels are going to be spinning and it's going to take you a little longer. Yeah, that's very helpful. Yeah, I definitely want to dig into that kind of using outside help. But I do also want to take a break and have us talk about For Good Granola, which you got your pack and you... Um, so yeah. And I, I actually, I had mine earlier, so I'm just going to, uh, give my feedback. So yeah, but would love for you to try, uh, try it if you haven't tasted it yet. I was going to eat it for breakfast today, but I just had a very crazy meeting day and I haven't gotten around to it. But so far I like the sound of the ingredients. It says nuts, grits, seeds, and tart cherries, no oat granola. Um, this is right up my alley and I'll probably have it with some oat milk. (laughs) Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. And so, yeah, Four Good Granola won our uh, our Shelfie Awards. Uh, this year was one of our winners. And so you can also stay tuned. Listeners can stay tuned at the end of this episode. There will be a little mini interview with founder Kylie. So, um, yeah, wanted to kind of give you all a little quick plug for that. And uh, Jen and I both got to ch- uh, or both are getting to try it this week. So that's super fun. Yeah, I can't wait. So, yeah. Keep me keep me posted on uh, on what you think. Quick pause. Jenna sent me her review after we recorded, so I wanted to share that with you. Super excited to try this no oak granola. Um, It's the first time I've had this, and I'm totally addicted. It has nuts, growth, seeds, and tart cherries instead of oats. Um, What I like most about it is that it's not super sweet. You can actually taste a little hint of sea salt in there. Um, I love that. And I've been eating it with oat milk. It's so good. I loved the samples Kylie sent me, and you'll hear in the interview at the end more about how Kylie's background as a chef helped her create such an incredible multisensorial granola. Yeah, so going into, you mentioned, um, you know, potentially utilizing a consultant, which came up a lot in our other first hire episodes of, you know, maybe you hire an operations consultant to set up your operations and then an internal person manages or Maybe you uh, hire a fractional CFO and then you have a bookkeeper internally, like those kind of, you know, pieces. So I definitely am curious about your perspective on like how finding the right consultant or fractional person to work with in the food service side, like what is there to look for? You you mentioned that there's potentially quite a few options, like kind of how do you navigate that? Who do you start with um, and decide to work with, you know, as a, as an emerging brand? Yeah, it honestly is pretty difficult to navigate that. And uh, we have tried in the past um, all kinds of different approaches with the companies that I've been. I remember at Just, we, um, and this is a little bit different than a consultant, but um, we hired a large national broker. And at the time, I feel like it was a little too soon for us to have this huge national broker with, you know, 700 some employees when we had only a fraction of that. And we went and trained all of them and put a ton of effort and work into it. Um, only to really at the end of the day not see um, the ROI after like months of effort. So I think it's important to look at where you're at, um, really focus on how big your food service business is is today um, and where you want to be and set realistic goals as you're looking into hiring someone internally, working with brokers, 
hiring a consultant. Um, and then again, focusing on the channels you want to break into. Um, there are definitely there are definitely channel specific consultants and brokers. So um, you know, I've had a lot of success in the past working with um, CNU specific consultants. I would be happy to send you a few suggestions um, after um, and names. So CNU, I think, is a great one where you can lean on a consultant because, again, it's all about building those connections and relationships. You could also have a C-store broker or consultant. So, um, you know, really breaking into that convenience space tends to be very specialized and strategic. So that's another area I would recommend a category-specific consultant. Um, same thing with the military. Um, can be very hard to break into, as is K-12. through so those are all like channel specific where you can bring in just like one person or a couple people to help you grow those channels. Um, you can also work with a strategic advisor or smaller broker to help you across the board in food service. And that can mean, um, you know, breaking into QSRs, regional chains, starting to build relationships with chains that have like 200 or less locations. Um, breaking into distribution and you know a smaller broker consultant would maybe have like 6 or 7 or 8 employees all over the country but they would be specialists in their area um so if you wanted to start a little larger where you still have some feet on the street but you don't necessarily have a bunch of internal dedicated people that might be a good place to start there are a lot of areas of food service that can get quite complex when you're navigating the um, the paperwork and the pricing and everything. So even you know placing bids for K through 12 or um, trying to get into Sodexo or Compass Group and navigating those programs or working on a, a national contract for Cisco, it really helps to have someone who's done that before and can kind of speak that language and tell you what to do and what not to do. Um, and there, you know, are plenty of options along in that um, bucket of, you know, smaller strategic consultants that can help you in food service as a whole, and really define where you want to go. They can even help you create like food service marketing collateral. Because um, food service marketing looks a lot different from retail marketing, you know, instead of having this, again, this like, I keep pulling it up, instead of having this like, beautiful package on the shelf, you need to create um, food service specific sell sheets and spec sheets that have all of the product information, the different ways to cook it, whether that's in a microwave or a deep fryer or a turbo chef or on the stove, um, you know, the shelf life, uh, how long can it be slacked out refrigerated, all of those like very food service specific components, um, you know, you can lean on an advisor to help you build them. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm curious about some other differences as far as like when you're in food service sales and you're interacting and building out accounts, how it maybe differs from retail when, you know, if you're trying to get in Sprouts, let's say there's like, there's a review calendar and there's all these like very there's a very specific type of way of doing something. I'm curious how that compares to food service and then what that looks like then as far as your, you know, how you're interacting with operators or, you know, people that you're trying to to sell into. Yeah, that's a great question. It varies across the board. Um, you can definitely get lucky. And if you are working with a chain and they say, I have demand for something plant-based right now, I really need a plant-based chicken tender and you send it to them and they're like, great, I love it. Um, you know, they could bring it in. Um, it may take 
a bit longer if you're not stocked in their preferred distributor. Um, but that could take maybe a couple of months. Um, if you are working with a larger, you know, QSR, it's probably going to take a lot longer than that, you know, a year, um, maybe even more. But there is definitely seasonality in food service, that being said. It's not the same as a category reset. Um, but just speaking specifically to college university, because I know that segment very well, um, they are looking at new items in like February or March. There are actually some strategic shows that you can attend during that time frame, um, you know, for the, the, the upcoming semester. Um, so say you're trying to get into a bunch of CNUs. Um, in 2023, my recommendation would be to start talking to them and approaching them, um, you know, earlier in the year, maybe attend some strategic trade shows in March, um, and then get them ready to start ordering their product in July for the fall semester. So, um, yeah, I would really hit as many CNUs as, as you can with, with that like seasonality in mind. Um, and then for larger opportunities, try to get in front of them at the start of the year so that as they're planning their menu for uh, Q3, Q4 are the following year. You can get in at the right time. Um, and you can also, again, work with consultants to make sure you're a part of those bids as they come up and that you're not missing any opportunities. Right. And for, so if you're, if you are a, like a first hire or an early hire within food service sales and you are doing the hybrid model that you spoke to earlier, if you also have a broker, what would you say is helpful for really maximizing that broker relationship? Because at least when we've talked about brokers on the show previously with first hires and retail sales, you know, brokers aren't like a set it and forget it. Like you, you pay them and then just magically everything, uh, everything works out. So like, what are some, what are some things that you should focus on to maximize the broker relationship in food service? And then that also kind of, you know, tells us some things that, you know, we, some skills that we would want to first hire in food service sales to have as far as managing that broker relationship? Yeah, absolutely. That is a great question, how to successfully manage brokers. Um, I've worked with tons of brokers in the past, some with, you know, very, very large organizations and some more smaller and strategic, like I was just talking about. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, you're totally right. You can't expect a broker to just um, be your brand advocate and expert. Um, out of the gate. That's not fair to them. You're not setting up your brand for success. You're not setting up your bro broker for success. So I would say, you know, developing a strong training um, out the gate is always really beneficial. Go over all the products in detail, make sure they have samples in their home that they can like eat and enjoy and test. Um, you know, I can't stress that enough. Uh, we, for me, I want, I want my brokers to try everything and I want them to be able to try it um, in different recipes and different applications and really get their hands on the product. And then more generally, I always try to be as available as I can be. Um, the worst case scenario is your broker, you know, has some training, they're excited about the the product and the brand, they walk into a meeting, and they run into a question that they don't know how to answer. And, um, you know, and then they're not able to reach someone to help them. Um, because keep in mind, like your brokers are going to be all over the world. So for me, just being accessible is super important. I've definitely FaceTimed into kitchens with chefs in the past and, you know, kind of like help walk them through remotely. Um, and then just, you know, providing consistent and up-to-date communication. You really need to see your brokers as an extension of your sales force. So whenever you have new information, whether that is sell sheets or new pricing or new product samples, or even, um, you know, new press, or you get into somewhere like a really exciting chain, I try to share all of that stuff out with the brokers to make sure they're up to date and they're excited, they're enabled, 
um, with all of the information they need, like readily at their fingertips. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Some, some people management of enabling a, a team to go out and do what they need to do. And then, and then also, again, they are, a, there are a vendor that you're managing. So some, some vendor management skills as well in there to make sure that the performance is hitting what you need to for the team as well, I'm guessing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of cadence, I usually try to check in with all my brokers every week. Um, it always, it can be, it, it can be scheduled, you know, let's just say every Friday and we check in, but oftentimes it ends up being a little more sporadic around that, just depending on where they are, um, the momentum. Um, and then usually we'll try to have a more um, planned and strategic quarterly update and check-in with the broader team just to share any updated company goals, talk about new products, what's working, what's not working, and really have more of an open forum. Um, and then it just as an aside, I love doing trade shows with my brokers just because it's a great opportunity um, to get FaceTime with the brand and you know really learn how to sell the product in person to actual buyers. So the more you can get out there and be in person uh, with your team, whether it's customer cuttings or at shows, definitely would recommend that too. Yeah. Is there a, you know, I I suppose it depends on the, the area that you're focusing on, but, you know, how, is there a certain number of shows that you would kind of expect someone working in food service sales to be going to a year to be out there or, you know, going to shows with a broker um, it sounds like there's kind of different shows for different channels. So would, would kind of traveling to those shows be a key part of the function? Yeah, absolutely. And again, uh, you know, it depends on where you're focusing your efforts because there are tons of specific trade shows and food service that don't necessarily apply to everyone. Um, some of my favorite trade shows, the National Restaurant Association show is kind of the biggest one. And that's in Chicago in May. Um, that is kind of where brands launch everything new, exciting and fun in food service. It's massive. And it's a great opportunity to get your brand out there if you're new and if you have something new to launch. I will note that that one's on the more expensive side. Um, so you know, if you want to start smaller and build up to that in a couple of years, great. Um, I also love the Dot Food Show. That again is a big redistributor in food service. I've had a ton of success working with them over the years. Um, they have a national accounts team as well. And so they're really plugged into um, national operators, QSRs, they have good relationships with them. Um, and they work with tons of distributors. So it's a that is a really good selling show, in my opinion. Um, that one, I think is in April and is usually in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, so if you're stocked with DOT and you have products there, I would definitely do that one. Um, again, really good ROI and selling show. And then the other show that I love because um, college university is one of my favorite segments would be the NACUF show. And NACUF is the National Association for Colleges and Universities in Food Service. They have a handful of regional shows that are in March. And you can pick those depending on the regions you're stopped in, the regions you're trying to target. But then they also have a really good national show in July. And um, the NACUF show is all colleges and universities. Um, you know, you, you have access to all of their members um, and attendees. Uh, so you get a really good lead list of like thousands of people. Um, and then the cool thing about NACUFs is a lot of those colleges and universities are independent and they are always doing really interesting things with their dining. Um, you know, they've got amazing chefs. Um, at CNU. So it's a really good network of like foodies. And um, you can definitely make lifelong connections at the Make Cup show. 
Um, so I would for sure recommend that one too. And then there are tons of, you know, distributor specific shows, Cisco shows, U.S. food shows, the Unipro show. Unipro is a huge buying group in food service. They have two shows, um, one's at the start of the year and one's towards the end in September. Um, that one is a great one if you're a Unipro member. Um, I would probably do one or the other. And uh, yeah, off the top of my head, those are my favorite. You also in um, at Expo uh, East and West, there are definitely food service leads there too. So a lot of um, customers will go, especially if they're located near that area. So a lot of chains based in California go to Expo West. A lot of CNUs go to Expo West. Um, so I've always really liked that one, even though it is a more retail specific show. Um, everyone goes and it's so fun and it's massive. <laughs> yeah, that's that's great. And for when what would you what have you found to be helpful as far as support you receive from the brand that you're at when working in food service sales? Um, you know, we mentioned, you know, maybe if you're, if you're hiring someone in food service, it'd be good to have your packaging sorted out. You're going to need some, uh, you know, sales materials. But like what helps you be successful in your role that as a brand is thinking about hiring this first person or they do hire their first person, how can they make sure that they're setting that person up for success? Honestly, I think um, if the brand is flexible and excited about food service, ready to learn and you know dedicate resources to the channel, that's a great starting point. Um, more specifically, food service will need completely separate marketing materials um, than the retail channel needs. And that, that can be the things I already mentioned, like sell sheets and spec sheets, um, food service packaging, outer case labels, et cetera. Um, but then, you know, they will also need, um, high resolution food photography, um, recipe shots, even more, even better, like recipe videos. Um, whereas in retail, it's more on the packaging and product front and food service, you know, you want to make people hungry when they're looking at your food whether it's on a sell sheet or it's on a menu. Um, so really having that uh, photography and, um, you know, the, the food shots is super helpful. Um, so having a marketing team that's willing to be flexible and kind of like deliver those assets is a really nice thing to have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then is food service sales, um, we've, we've talked about this again when we talked about first hires and sales otherwise, but generally, should brands be expecting to have some sort of base plus a bonus model? Or what should you expect as far as how someone in food service sales is going to be compensated? Are there kind of standard ways that that's set up? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think building out incentives for any sales opportunity is the right move. Um, but in food service, I would say definitely structure um, your role with a base plus an incentive. Um, that could be 20, 25% in the startup space specifically. It is always awesome to have, um, shares as part of your hiring package too. I think in general, that just makes you feel more of an, uh, more of an owner of the brand or the company, which is true because you actually own shares. Um, so I think that is a lucrative incentive in addition. Um, but yeah, I would say base plus 20, 25% commission is pretty good. Yeah. Okay. Are there any, uh, you mentioned that it's maybe easy to get overwhelmed by all the different options or ways that, you know, directions you can go within food service. Are there any other kind of like pitfalls or, or things that you see happen within, you know, the early days of building out the food service channel that brands can avoid? Definitely. Um, okay. So another way that food service is different from retail, um, keep in mind that every time you sell into a food service operator, they are literally changing their menu 
to use your product. So if you have a core item in their menu, whether that's a chicken sandwich or a ranch dressing or their burger um, or their milkshake, if you have a short, if you have an out of stock in supply chain, eventually you will affect their menu and they're going to have to change their menu because they can't get your product. Um, I have heard this from operators so many times and it could be about my brand or another brand um, where the distributor shows up at their door and that product that they need for their menu is just not there. Um, it's swapped out for something else. It's not included at all. Um, so this causes a lot of frustration in um, food service and can be really hard for your operators. So just as a food service employee, I always try to be ahead of that situation. If I can give my operator, my friend a call um, and say, hey, just a heads up, we ran into a short, you will be seeing this. That saves everybody so much time um, and frustration if you can, um, you know, okay, great. One, come up with a solution, get them product, but at the very least, give them a heads up that something is happening um, that will affect their business. I think that just helps you, you know, maintain a great relationship in the long term. Um, yeah, so that would be one thing. I'm trying to think if there's anything else that just like pops to the top of my mind. I run into that all the time. So that's why it's very fresh in my mind. <laughs> yeah, that's a great one. That's a great one. Cool. Well, um, I also wanted to fit in, uh, you also do work with the Vegan Women's Summit. And can you share just a little bit about that with us as we wrap up? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm super excited to be on the Vegan Women's Summit team this year. Um, the Vegan Women's Summit is an amazing event. Um, in 2022, it occurred in LA. And uh, you know, it's a great opportunity for women founders and um, people in the space, in the cell base, in the plant-based space to come and network and meet other women founders, attend events. Um, it, again, it's not just for women. We highly encourage men to attend as well. Um, like I said, this year was in LA, but next year we're going to New York. Next year, we have pretty much doubled the number of attendees we can hold because we sold out this year. Um, so we're going to have 1,500 attendees. It's a three-day event. We're having 50 speakers this, this year versus 25 last year. Um, it's a beautiful space called 99 Scott. And it will include um, a day long of speaking and panels and delicious food, food trucks of all the latest, hottest plant-based brands and cell-based brands. Um, and then we'll also offer a networking fair with like VCs and buyers um, and potential uh, employees for your company. Um, and we'll include a VAP after party and a reception hosted, hosted by Mayor Eric Adams. Um, there are still tickets left. So if you would like to attend, I encourage you to go pick one up. It will probably sell out. And um, yeah, it's going to be really fun. Amazing. Yeah, I'll put the link in the show notes. I am currently reading The Future of Food is Female by the Vegan Women Summit founder. So uh, yeah, that's awesome. I love that you're involved. And uh, yeah, I will make sure that that's there in case uh, hopefully people can get can grab tickets and attend. Well, this has been awesome, Jenna. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. This is so helpful to get to hear from your journey within food service sales. And so just so appreciate you being here and sharing with us today. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me and uh, happy to answer any like follow up questions that may pop up. Awesome. Should, can people connect with you on LinkedIn? Is that way, the best way to find you in the world? Yeah, please connect with me on LinkedIn. I would love to talk to you. <laughs> okay, I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes and yeah, but thank you again. So great to have you here today. Yeah, thanks so much, Jesse. I really enjoyed it. Don't go anywhere just yet. Keep listening for my interview with Four Good Granola. Hi, Kylie. Welcome to the show today. How are you? I'm awesome. Thanks for having me, Jesse. 
Yeah, so glad to have you here. As I let you know before we pressed play, I have been snacking on your granola all day. I love the cranberry spice. Oh my gosh. I really love it. So good. I love cranberry in general. So uh yeah, that that's a um that's a new favorite. So thank you so much for sharing with me and just so glad to have you here to get to hear more of the story and you know, maybe start us off by just telling us a little more about your products and then from there we can kind of dig into the background. Sure, sure. Yeah. So uh at Four Good Granola we make a flavor forward no oat buckwheat granola. So we no oats. We completely swap the oats out. The foundation of all of our four flavors uh, is buckwheat, which uh, we shorten as groats, uh, the whole seed of a buckwheat plant. So when buckwheat groats are slowly toasted, they take on this awesome crunch and a really nice nutty flavor. Um, and as I said, flavor forward. So uh, I'm a chef by trade. Flavor is super important to me, uh, as is the mouthfeel, the aroma, everything that kind of plays a role. So we're super intentional about the ingredients we include understanding kind of flavor affinities and how they all work together. And yeah, cranberry spice is one of, uh, you know, I love all my children equally, but um, <laughs> I think one of those unexpected. So, you know, when we say cranberry spice, our spice components are really uh, more of a chai spice than a pumpkin spice, right? So you're going to get cardamom, some anise, some star anise in there, real nice kind of bright cranberry seeds. Yeah. Glad you like it. Yeah. It's, it's really amazing. Um, I can't, can't wait to keep eating it. Um <laughs> But that probably doesn't sound good on the microphone. Um, <laughs> but would love to hear kind of the story. That's it's awesome that you're a chef by trade. So tell us how how you you went, you know, started your company. Like, what did that look like? How I went rogue. Yeah, um, I feel you know, there's there's so many people, I think, as I learn more and more about this uh, kind of unique niche of emerging brands who who started in the kitchen, whether as a true chef or just an awesome baker or whatever it is, um, and had a great idea. You know, it. I'm one of those pandemic stories, as there's a lot of us out there. Um, during uh, the pandemic, I had to take a step back from the kitchen. A lot of my kitchen work was within chef instruction and private chef work. And so not a whole lot of people were welcoming outsiders into their home at the time. Uh, and then uh, in kind of conjunction with that, I started doing a, a lot more home time with my family and my kids. I've got three kids, uh, two of which are superheroes, as I call them, who have uh, significant disabilities. And, you know, I've never before really had the opportunity to kind of do something that had a personal connection to my life. Uh, and it was really my way of how do I get myself into back into my chef mode, um, doing something that I love in the kitchen and merge it with my personal love, which is obviously my family and my kids. And so the four good is um, obviously our granola is great for you. But for me, the four good is we give to organizations uh, that engage, empower and elevate kids and adults with disabilities. And obviously that's you know super important to me, real close to my heart. Wow, that's so cool. I also love that you're using buckwheat. I think buckwheat is such an interesting ingredient. It's such a cool crop. I, I grew up on a farm, so I'm very interested in ingredients and crops. And I just think buckwheat's so interesting. And as a gluten-free, like generally gluten-free house, because my husband has celiac, like having your product be gluten-free and highlighting an ingredient like buckwheat, that's so cool. I love seeing that as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, as I had kind of mentioned, flavor texture is super important to me. 
Um, buckwheat is a very uh, interesting green on many levels, right? So glycemic scale is super important to a lot of people who practice a gluten-free diet, whether that's due to celiac or other reasons. Um, it's, it's low on the buckwheat as a general rule is low on the glycemic scale at about a 35 compared to 50 for oats. So a lot of people do a little bit better with buckwheat than they do with oats in general. Um, it's a sustainable crop, obviously. You know, there's a lot of awesome things uh, to say about buckwheat from a farming perspective relative to uh, it's a pretty hardy crop. There isn't a need for a lot of fertilizers, pesticides, those kind of things. Um, and it basically uh, regenerates the soil, right? Adds a lot of it, a lot of energy back in the soil, a lot of nutrients back into the soil. So it's a no brainer from just a smart ingredient to use. Uh, but again, when you add a certain level of dry heat to it, it just brings a whole new level of flavor out uh, and and gives you that real satiating kind of texture too. So people pick up on like the almonds as the primary nut in our granola, but they're like, what's that other nut? And it's the buckwheat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting. I'm also curious about, I've got the, I've got your beautiful packaging here next to me and like what it was like, especially with your background as a chef where you're generally making food for people and they're eating it right away. And now you're making something that is getting packaged up and someone's going to consume it later. Like what was that process like for you to get it into the packaging that it's into today? And yeah, how did that work? Yeah. You know, and it's the, it's the very common thing of the packaging is printed, it arrives you know, you open up the box, you get to look at it for the first time, and then you're like, oh, I should have put this on the pack. <laughs> but but it's, it is it is an interesting question. I was just having this conversation yesterday because I also during our, you know, we self-manufacture our granola. So even during that process, you know, people talk about, hey, we'd love to see what you're doing in the kitchen. What's it looking like when you're in production? And that's really hard for me as a chef. I'm so used to having the final product in its visual form within how it's supposed to be served, right? So that idea of just showing granola is is uh, a little bit more difficult to me. I really wanted to, to be um, eye-catching, right? We eat with our eyes first. Flavor is super important. You look at, as I, I'm looking across my computer at my packaging right now, you know, you look at smoky pineapple and you see that color. It should be inviting. It should be welcoming. It should be warm. All those kind of uh, aromas and visuals that we want people to see when they see a, a wonderful plate of food in front of them. So color was super important for us. Yeah, that's amazing. And now that you bring that up, that makes so much sense because it definitely, that was one of the first things I noticed was the visual component that it just visually, I was like, this looks really attractive and granola doesn't always, isn't the most, isn't always a super attractive thing to eat, right? It varies in what it looks like, but you really you have different colors and flavors and textures and so like it looks incredible before you eat it like you get excited or at least for me I'm like oh I'm excited to eat this granola it's not like a, oh I gotta put granola on my yogurt kind of thing this is a like oh I'm super excited to eat this because your your eyes are like oh that looks that looks tasty and it was real hard you know we we went back and forth quite a bit in terms of do we do the window on our packaging uh, versus doing a picture of the actual finished product. You know, you see a lot more uh, packaging options on the shelf that have an actual photograph of, of the product. Um, and for us, we just wanted you to be able to see the real thing. You know, I, I think both avenues are awesome. Uh, but I, for some reason, I was just, I was drawn to, I need to see it in that window. Like, I want to see what am I getting into as soon as I open that bag? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like that. And at what point did you find Startup CPG? How did you find Startup CPG? 
Yeah, crazy. Well, and so now I've been like screaming it from the rooftops to everyone. I just saw the email that came across that you guys were starting a beauty um, channel. And I was like, oh my gosh, all these people I've gone through accelerator programs in that have like, I've got to send it out. I've got to send it out. Um, I came across Startup CBG when I was taking part on a Naturally Chicago webinar. Um, someone had asked a question in terms of a good resource for collaboration with kind of fellow uh, startup, you know, brands. And um, as soon as I got off that webinar, I did a quick Google and, and found you. And and I, you know, you had made that comment like, you know, let's close a bunch of our windows before we get started. And ironically enough, yeah, Slack's always up. Startup CPG Slack, always, right? I've got a handful of channels I always go to. Um, and the crazy thing was there there were, you know, I just signed up for another one before I jumped on our call, focusing on um, couponing and rebates that you guys have coming mm -hmm. up. There's, it, It's like you read my mind every time. I know I've got to learn more. So it's awesome. I love that. I'm so glad that you found the group. I know I was so glad when I found Startup CPG when I did, which has been like, a year and probably almost two years ago. But yeah, I love hearing how people find the group. And thanks for sharing the, you know, sharing the word about it to other people as well. Yeah. It's so cool. We're so glad to have you in the group. Thank you. And so what's top of mind for you going into 2023? Like, what are you thinking about? And then what should we as consumers be looking out for and start getting excited about? Yeah, yeah. So inward, um, you know, I, I formally took a sabbatical from my chef work uh, about uh, four months ago, I started. So I'm going to continue on that sabbatical, really spend a lot more time uh, building out kind of our roadmap for growth. Uh, right now, we're focusing on the Chicago area and, and that will continue. You know, we'll continue with feet on the street, talking to buyers, retailers, continue our conversation with consumers, which has just been huge for us. Um, you know, a lot of major metro areas, including Chicago, have, have some awesome farmers markets. And it's really where we started about a year and a half ago. And it we've been super fortunate to continue communication with those customers. And it's real-time market research. So we'll keep at it until we feel like we haven't learned anything else. And that won't ever happen. Um, in terms of outward, what that means. Uh, so one of the biggest struggles of a chef starting um, a product is they want to be in the kitchen all the time, right? Like if I could create a new granola flavor every day, I would be in my glory, but you can't do that. Uh, <laughs> so I'm excited about tackling a couple on the list to bring some new limited release flavors to the market next year. Uh, working on some that fit within maybe the curry space a little bit, bringing in some more uh, gingery flavors. So we'll see what happens with that. But excited to get back and do flavor exploration on that one. Yeah. Oh, I'm super excited to see see what you come out with. I'm also curious if there's any like stories that you have from your journey so far that like really stick with you. It could be it could be a win. It could you know, it could be anything that's kind of uh, sticking with you um, or keeping you going in in this so far. Yeah, uh, I, probably a lot of stories. My more recent one, which was super crazy. I have a customer who um, found me early on when we started, uh, when I was still in that old school kind of craft bag packaging. And, uh, I, smoky pineapple is one of our flavors. I say it's kind of a crazy fan base favorite. Uh, he is notoriously always floating around the farmer's markets that I'm at is like president fan club of smoky pineapple. And he is actually right now on an excursion across, uh, Asia and, 
super cool. You know, as he's doing all his exploration with some smoky pineapple in hand and sending me pictures of it, it's awesome to see your product go that far, right? It's great to see it on the retail shelf, right? You get on your wish list retailer and you get to go shop in that market and see it. It's awesome. Uh, but to see actually someone who's consuming it and loves it so much that they're throwing it in their backpack as they're heading across Asia is so cool. Um, so that's been neat to kind of follow his journey and share it with the rest of my consumers on Instagram and where it's been and where it's headed. But yeah, the joke is right now, Smoky Pineapple has definitely got the most mileage. I love it. That's yeah. so cool. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Wow. And and uh, can you tell us about uh, some of the organizations that you support through through the product as well? Yeah. So I had mentioned our Crafted for Good mission in terms of supporting organizations that uh, engage, empower, and elevate kids and adults with disabilities. You know, there's a lot out there. And and obviously having that personal connection, I'm familiar with several that we have been able to benefit from. But at the same time, there's a lot out there that I, I don't even know about. And so that's been super cool to learn um, about a space I thought I knew a whole lot about that I didn't. Um, so whether it's been, you know, whether it's bringing further understanding to people who don't quite understand that world disabilities or don't live in it to show them how they can make a difference. You know, the coolest thing we just, um, did a partnership with an organization called Clearbrook that primarily works with adults and, um, I just got a message from, uh, Vicki, who I worked with there last week. And she basically had shared, you know, the donation that we made through kind of our uh, specific focus on that partner through sales, we were able to buy iPads for these residents, you know, 175 residents now had access, you know, to these four iPads, which basically allowed them to do job training, access, access job opportunities, Zoom with their families, do recreational skill sets, you know, emotional, social learning that they otherwise one have access to. So that's the kind of stuff that's super cool, right? Money means a lot, but at the same time, when you hear those tangible outputs that you're helping with, um, even as someone who knows how much that need is out there, being able to put that visual in my head is so rewarding, right? And makes it so important for us to continue to find those organizations to partner with and and support them as much as we can. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. That's that's so cool. Well, yeah. I can't wait to keep following along and, you know, that all of us at Star CBG are cheering you on and I encourage everyone go to forgoodgranola.com and then on Instagram you can follow at @forgoodfoods and follow along cuz I I'm super excited and I hope everyone goes and checks it out and gets some gets some of your granola in their life cuz uh, I think they're they're going to be very, very pleased that they do. So I'm so glad that you could join me today and that I could get to learn a little bit more about you and your story. Thank you so much for sharing with me. Aw, thanks, Jesse. I appreciate you making the time. And I got to tell you, I mean, you guys are awesome. Everything that you're doing at Startup CBG, we couldn't be more grateful for just the support you're given and the energy that you put out there to everyone. It, it's huge. So thank you. Thank you for listening in today. I'm so honored you joined me for this conversation. And I love hearing from you all with feedback, suggestions, or if you just want to say hi at podcast at startupcpg.com, or you can find me on LinkedIn. If you liked this episode, we'd love for you to share it with a friend or colleague, subscribe so you don't miss future episodes, and maybe even leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you aren't yet in our Slack community of founders and experts, we'd love to see you there. You can get the free invite at startupcpg.com 
and find all our other awesome resources there like webinars, databases, the blog, the magazine, and virtual and in-person events. And if you found yourself rocking out to our intro and outro music, which I do every single time, make sure to check out the Super Fantastics on Spotify. It's the band of our startup CPG founder, Daniel Scharf. I'm Jesse Freitag, your host and producer, and on behalf of the whole team at Startup CPG, thank you for being here and see you next week.